Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, complete with a head cold, and this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast that is walking through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in Purgatorio, Canto 10, lines 94 through 111. This is my English translation of the medieval Florentine of this short passage. You can find it on my website, markscarborough.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can read along, print it off, or you can continue the conversation with me there. This is an unusual place to break our reading through Canto 10 of Purgatorio. It's actually a transition moment, but before I get there, let me remind you of what has happened because it bears in on this transition moment. Dante and Virgil have come up a narrow staircase after the gate of Purgatory. Well, I guess not really a staircase. It's really a steep ascent. I keep thinking of it as a staircase because I keep imagining those Gustave Doré illustrations. Seeing so many hundreds of years of work on Dante that you get it all mixed up in your mind into one big melange, Gustave Doré and a medieval poet. They came up at steep ascent, as I was saying. And then they came out on a deserted terrace. There, Dante has noticed three intaglios. First, the Annunciation. Second, King David jumping in front of the Ark of the Covenant with his wife, the daughter of Saul, Michal, looking down at him in disdain. And then third, a much larger scene of Trajan and a bereaved widow standing at his bridal just as he's about to go off on a campaign, a widow who is demanding some kind of justice. We've come out of those three scenes. Now, Dante is going to comment on those scenes, comment on his reactions to them, and we're going to turn toward what comes next in the terrace. Purgatorio, Canto 10, lines 94 through 111. The one whose sight can brook nothing new had created this visible speech. It was new to us because it couldn't be found anywhere else. As I took such pleasure in looking at these images of complete humility, images even more precious to see because of their craftsmen, the poet murmured, Behold, here they come. So many people with such slow steps. They'll cue us to the next ascent. My eyes had been quite content to stare at the marble art, but they quickly turned in this new direction, so delighted at the promise of something new. I don't want you, reader, to fall off your best intentions when you hear how God decides the debt should be paid. Don't linger over the nature of the suffering. Think about what comes next. Think that, at the very worst, this can't go beyond the last judgment. Okay, I told you it was a really odd place to break it. We're not even looking at the people coming around the bend yet. We've seen them in our read-through bearing their great stone burdens, but for now, we don't even see them. I broke it here because this is a seam. I want to talk about that. If you remember, that last intaglio had been so dramatic with Trajan and the widow, and it appeared as if they had a complete, oh, what do we want to say, dramatic? dialogue with each other, thus this visible speech here. So much drama in that scene, and then it leads out into 
this weird seamed transition moment. Let's talk about uh, Virgil in this passage. I really want to talk about that for a minute. I want to talk a little bit about ekphrastic poetry, which we have not talked about until this second. And then, of course, we have to deal with this, the third direct address to the reader in Purgatorio. We might as well get to it. As I said, this is a strange place to stop, but it lets us see back and forward. When Dante starts this little transitional seam moment, we're looking at that visible speech of Trajan and the widow in the intaglio, and then we're looking forward to what comes next. It's crucial in narrative, in all narrative, any narrative, to pay attention to the seams. <laughs> I'm thinking of my husband's grandmother, who was a seamstress in New York City. City, every time my husband would bring a sweater home, a shirt home, a pair of pants home, his grandmother would instantly turn it inside out and look at all the seams and say how shoddily they were done and rip them all out and re-sew it or re-stitch it or re-knit it all so that the seams were right. She was onto something about narrative. The seams, the Junctures, the joints in a narrative are the crucial moments. For example, if we were reading a modern narrative, let's say we were reading Willa Cather or F. Scott Fitzgerald, we'd want to watch where the point of view shifts. How does it shift from one character to another? And when the point of view makes a big shift in a narrative, why does it make that shift? Is there a bit of discomfort from the author and so the point of view is shifting amongst the characters? Is the author trying to say something to us about that shift? Here, we don't actually have a point of view shift with Dante, but we do have scenic shifts. And what happens in these scenic shifts over and over again is we get a weird flip-flop between the pilgrim Dante and the poet Dante. Remember when Garion shows up in Inferno and we get that swearing on the book of comedy that this really happened and we got that weird flip-flopping between pilgrim and poet. This is the same in this passage. We see the pilgrim staring at the intaglio. We see him wanting something new. And at the same time, we hear the poet Dante in the background warning us, the readers, not to be shocked about what the pilgrim Dante and we with him are about to see as the first penitents come along. All of this is wrapped up in a strange moment with Virgil, which we want to talk about because it's kind of the very dead center of the seam. It's where the stitches lie. To get to that with Virgil, let's start back through the passage at line 94. It begins, the one whose sight can brook nothing new had created this visible speech. Of course, the one whose sight can brook nothing new is God. This really gets to the heart of why Dante thinks that creativity is based on what came before. You can't make up something new because, and here's the theological principle, only God can create ex nihilo, out of nothing. God creates the world in Christian theology out of nothing, ex nihilo, and only God can create ex nihilo. Remember, the usurers are punished because they try to think that by charging interest, they're creating something out of nothing. They're trying to play a lesser God or mimic God. Here, Dante seems to be stressing to us that the new lies with God. And this is part of why Dante doesn't think he can make something new, because to make something fully new would be blasphemous. It would be putting 
the artist in the position of God. And so here, God's ability to create these intaglios, these reliefs that are so realistic that it appears that people are actually speaking, <laughs> having entire conversations in the last one. This is all new from God. And it's reiterated in line 96. It was new to us because it couldn't be found anywhere else. God is the one who brings all newness out of nothing. After that explanation of artistic purpose, the pilgrim then says, I took such pleasure in looking at these images of complete humility, images even more precious to see because of their craftsmen, so because of God. Now we know what those three scenes were about, complete or utter humility. And this is what I said to you in the last episode of the podcast. Comedy can only be read by being reread. We've gotten through these three scenes and we've come now out of them and now suddenly we know what they're really about or what the poet wants them to be about. Humility. And so now we can comb back through the Annunciation. Now we can comb back through David in front of the Ark and we can comb back through Trajan and the Bereaved Widow and find humility where it lies. Now, let me say that it's difficult. Where does it lie? Certainly it lies with the Virgin Mary. In David and Michael is jumping about half naked in front of the ark. Humility? Maybe. It doesn't seem like it at first blush. With Trajan and the widow, who's actually humble in that passage? I mean, she is. She's standing there at his bridal. But isn't he humbled by the end of that passage, doesn't he express some form of humility? So you can see that it's a little tough when you look back. But nonetheless, that is what's going on there in those passages that are supposed to be ekphrastic poetry. Ekphrasis, poetry that is about an art object. If I wrote a poem about, I don't know, Rembrandt's The Night Watch, we would say that that is ekphrastic poetry. When Keats writes his ode on a Grecian urn, this is a form of ekphrastic poetry. Poetry that is about a visual piece of art, a painting, sculpture, vase, pottery, what have you. Here's the problem, and yes, this is ekphrastic, kind of, Except you'd have to believe these intaglios are real to think that this is ekphrastic poetry. This is poetry that looks like ekphrastic poetry, but it's not. So many Dantistas say, oh, we have Dante writing in the ekphrastic tradition, the ekphrastic genre here. And I always want to stop and say, well, yeah, I guess if you think those are actual pieces of art there and they themselves are not first made up. See, this is where... <laughs> <laughs> the complexity the whole thing bears in upon itself. This is a huge question and not one we can easily answer in a podcast. Does Dante understand this complexity? I'm not sure. You know, I've wrestled with this before in the podcast. I am sure that Dante leaves comedy open enough to allow this kind of wrestling. Does Dante actually intend this kind of wrestling, that I can never actually decide. Actually, to be honest with you, I don't think anyone can. I mean, you can if you decide Dante's some kind of divinely sanctioned saint prophet who's giving this vision, but I don't think I can come to any determination of whether Dante intends 
pretends something. But I can say that this hole in the poetry is really interesting because the ekphrastic poetry is establishing the realism claim of the intaglios, which are themselves imagined by the poet. Oh, so difficult, and I'm sure you could hear my throat catch in my cold right there. Let's turn from that and the complete humility, which our poet does not have, given that he's writing ekphrastic poetry about his own imagined art. Let's turn from that and to Virgil. This is the curious depth in the scene. The poet, that is Virgil, murmured, Behold, here they come. So many people with such slow steps, they'll cue us to the next ascent. What are we to make of Virgil's being less enthralled with the art than Dante? Remember, Virgil pushes Dante on to the scene with David after the Annunciation. We spoke about that. Here again, Virgil seems less intent on staring in pure glee at what's going on. And there's a very strange word used here, murmured. The last time we saw this word in comedy was uh, with Ulysses to describe how that divided flame speaks. It murmurs in Inferno. It's also a loaded biblical verb, murmured. Virgil doesn't state, he doesn't call out, he doesn't remind, he's not clear, he's kind of muttering under his breath. What is going on? Well, we could say, for one thing, that, and many Dantistas do, that Virgil is less interested in God's art than the pilgrim is. Virgil, as a pagan, of course, wouldn't see the full ramification of this idea that God has created art. And so Virgil would be like, oh, yeah, nice, nice pictures. Let's go on. <laughs> Virgil's the guy in the Louvre that's just walking through all the galleries, I, I suppose. And that is certainly one standard way to read it. Another way to read it and a little more complex is that after that scene of Trajan, who is saved because Gregory the Great calls him back from the dead through prayer and is able to preach the gospel to him. After that scene with Trajan, we are reminded of Virgil's damnation. Virgil doesn't get the same treatment. Well, there is a medieval story that runs around that St. Paul prayed for Virgil's salvation at Virgil's tomb. Uh, I don't know anybody that has necessarily dealt with that, but we would say that most medievals bought the legend that Trajan had come back from the dead and heard the gospel through Gregory the Great. Given that, Virgil's damnation is foregrounded. Well, Virgil's a pagan. How come he didn't get such good treatment? And thus, our poet murmurs. Or, let's lean into that verb, murmurs. In order to do this, I'm going to have to get a little anti-Semitic. Please forgive me. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites are wandering around the wilderness for 40 years after the giving of the Ten Commandments, at that moment, the frequent verb used to explain them is that they murmured. That is, they complained. 
this incessant murmuring, complaining about their lot in the wilderness. This murmuring finally undoes Moses. He just can't stand it anymore and strikes the rock. All right, here's where it gets a little anti-Semitic. This is the problem of growing one religion out of another. When Christianity grows out of Judaism, of course, it then has a very wild relationship with Judaism. One of the things that happens is that you can kind of see this idea that the saints don't murmur. The Israelites, being led directly by the glory of God, were so bold as to murmur at God, and this is why they didn't finally make it to the promised land, as opposed to the saints who gloriously accept their fate. It's getting anti-Semitic suddenly in the interpretation, but that may actually be going on here. Virgil is linked to the murmuring Israelites in the wilderness who, in fact, are seeing the works of God and saying, oh, come on, it's so hard, it's so dry, it's so dusty, there's no water, come on, Moses, get us someplace good, as opposed to Dante, the Christian who is astounded by the art, amazed, caught in absolute wonder at this art. That could be part of why the poet murmurs. Or let me offer a fourth answer here, and that is maybe we shouldn't focus on Virgil. Maybe we should focus on Dante. Everybody says, what's the deal with Virgil in these three lines because of the murmuring? Fair enough. But maybe really the point is Dante, the old poets, the established poets, the poets who've been working for a long time and been poets for a very long time, maybe they're not as easily captured by anything that seems new. Maybe it's the new guys who get kind of caught up and say, oh my gosh, look at that. Oh my gosh. You know, like early creative writing students who everything they read is the best thing they've ever read. Maybe that's the comment here. The old guard poet is like, come on, let's get going. And furthermore, here they come, the first set of penitents, while you're sitting there gawking at art. Maybe this is more of a comment about Dante than Virgil because of the next lines. My eyes had been quite content to stare at the marble art, but they quickly turned in this new direction, so delighted at the promise of something new. Maybe this is really about Dante and less about Virgil, although I've stressed a lot of ways you can read it about Virgil. Enough with all of that. Let's talk about the last bit, the address to the reader. Let me read it to you. I don't want you, reader, to fall off your best intentions when you hear how God decides the debt should be paid. Don't linger over the nature of the suffering. Think about what comes next. Think that at the very worst, this can't go beyond the last judgment. And then we're going to see the prideful coming along. It's always interesting to me that these six lines are inserted here and break the narrative. Dante is staring at the art. Virgil says, hey, look, here come some people. They're going to tell us how to get up. And Dante turns. And you would expect the next breath, the next and, to be who those people are. Instead, the next breath, the next six lines, enclose this direct address to the reader. And I've always wondered if these six lines are a moment of insecurity since they interrupt the narrative. Let me explain that for just a second. I think the dominant question here is how can the penitent suffer as much as the damned? Now, We've had to read through, so you kind of know what's coming, but the prideful are coming along bearing the burdens of these gigantic rocks that are almost squashing them to the ground. Frankly, the prideful coming along are suffering no worse a fate 
than the hypocrites in Inferno 23 who are walking around in their lead coat, their gilded lead cowls. How is it that the penitent suffer as much as the damned? And apparently the answer for Dante lies in duration, not intensity, because the passage ends, don't linger over the nature of suffering. Think about what comes next. Think that at the very worst, this can't go beyond the last judgment. Remember in Inferno 6, lines 103 through 111, we had Chaco the pig sit up amongst the gluttons in all the filth with Cerberus there. And after they came through all those bits about Florence and what's going to happen to Florence with Chaco, Dante and Virgil walk on and Dante says, okay, tell me, is it going to get worse or better after the last judgment? And Virgil says, you're forgetting, you're Aristotle. <laughs> it's going to get worse because everything gets more perfect as it gets toward its end. So actually the punishments are going to get worse after the last judgment. In this case, I think we're being told the difference is duration. The penitents suffer, yes, like those in hell, but in fact, not for long. Now, I have a big question, and it doesn't have anything to do with comedy. Comedy causes me to ask this question. Is think what comes next really an answer to the problem of pain? Is the answer to suffering, hey, guess what? Better is coming along. For me, it is not an appropriate answer. The answer to suffering is not wait until the next life or wait until a better day. The answer to suffering, oh, here I say it, <laughs> me say it, is as Jesus does to heal the sick and to sit with the poor and the prostitutes. That seems like a bigger answer than wait until what comes next. But Dante seems to be in the camp of those who say, well, it's bad now, but you know what? It's going to get better. I always think, even when I'm told it, that it indicates a bit of insecurity. For example, when my dad was dying, my mom kept pushing off into the next life. Well, you know, he's going to be leaping around heaven when all of this is over. And I kept thinking that didn't make up for this horrible suffering of grotesque liver cancer. And I always thought that her saying, oh, he's going to be leaping around in heaven, was expressing essentially a discomfort at the level of suffering right here in front of us. And so I'm going to turn back to the narrative out of my own personal life and say, I always wonder if this address to the reader isn't a little bit of insecurity. I'm about to put the redeemed, although the penitential redeemed, the redeemed through punishments as drastic as those in hell. So I'm a little uncomfortable by that notion. And yet, of course, and this is the big problem we're going to have to deal with over and over in purgatory, pain is a purgative. Pain is purity. Pain brings purity. Does it? Has it? Does it in your life? Has it in your life? Do you see it in the lives of others? Does suffering make them purer? Hmm. Huge ethical questions that Dante foists on us with comedy, and many of them found in this strange passage that's a crack between two moments in Canto 10. Let's read it one more time. Purgatorio, Canto 10, lines 94 through 111. 
The one whose sight can brook nothing new had created this visible speech. It was new to us because it couldn't be found anywhere else. As I took such pleasure in looking at these images of complete humility, images even more precious to see because of their craftsmen, the poet murmured, Behold, here they come. So many people, but with such slow steps, they'll cue us to the next ascent. My eyes had been quite content to stare at the marble art, but they quickly turned in this direction. So delighted at the promise of something new. I don't want you, reader, to fall off your best intentions when you hear how God decides the debt to be paid. Don't linger over the nature of the suffering. Think about what comes next. Think that at the very worst, this can't go beyond the last judgment. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, I hope that you will consider supporting it. I have a great many monetary financial commitments to this podcast they involve the editing fees hosting fees website fees streaming fees i gotta pay royalties on all those sound effects oh so i would ask if you could to think about supporting the podcast you can do that through a paypal link found right in the player here or in fact you can go out to my website markscarbro.com or walkingwithante.com and give whatever you can to help support the podcast i truly appreciate it and please know that even if you don't i'm gonna keep doing this as much as I can because I simply love the walk in all of its weirdness, wildness, and wonder. Thanks for listening to this episode of Walking with Dante. I'm glad you're on the journey with me, the walk with me. It's so strange. Virgil murmuring? It's just so weird. Such a wild verb to drop in there. It just brings us up short when we think we're kind of skating along, understanding the passage. And I love the ethical questions that Dante asks because I think they're really important. Even if he answers them in ways that I don't answer them, they are crucial to think through. And my saying I don't agree with him is actually a tribute to him because he's forcing me to figure out my own ethics for this very strange and fragmented world we live in. I will see you next time when we actually see the first of the penitents on the first terrace of purgatory. I'm Mark Scarborough. Let's keep walking. Walking with Dante.